Hey, everyone. Kara here from The Kara Golden Show. Look, I've started and scaled companies, but when I first started podcasting, figuring out the workflow for this business was a real challenge. There were so many moving parts that I needed to learn from scheduling and recording to editing and promoting each episode. But once I streamlined the process, things got easier. I was able to focus more on bringing in amazing guests and delivering great content, which was such a relief. Thinking about this experience reminded me of the challenges many face managing their business every day. Whether you are the CEO or working supporting one, you need the right tools to streamline processes, especially when it comes to shipping and handling orders. That's where ShipStation comes in. ShipStation makes it easy to manage your shipments from all your sales channels. ShipStation automates tasks, prints shipping labels in bulk, and keeps your customers informed, freeing up your time to focus on growing your business. If you're looking for a way to simplify shipping and make your business more efficient, ShipStation is the solution. With ShipStation, you can integrate with all the places you sell online, optimize your shipping, save costs and time too. Personally, ShipStation has been a lifesaver for me. Its automation features allow me and my team to manage orders from anywhere, print shipping labels from just a click. Yes, it's that easy. And the cost savings? Unbelievable with discounts up to 89% off carrier rates. And who wouldn't want that? Plus, an easy-to-use dashboard, robust reporting. Oh, and did I mention that over 130,000 companies have leveraged ShipStation to grow their businesses as well? ShipStation just makes it easier so your business can grow. And yes, even when you're on your summer vacation, ShipStation is it. Work less and ship more with ShipStation, the innovative tool that helps turn your shipping challenges into opportunities for growth. Go to ShipStation.com and use code CARA, K-A-R-A, to sign up for your free 60-day trial. That's ShipStation.com, code CARA. Use code CARA for a free 60-day trial. That's ShipStation.com, promo code CARA. I am unwilling to give up, that I will start over from scratch as many times as it takes to get where I want to be. I want to be. You just want to make sure you will get knocked down, but just make sure you don't get knocked out, knocked out. So your only choice should be go focus on what you can control, control, control. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Kara Golden Show. Join me each week for inspiring conversations with some of the world's greatest leaders, We'll talk with founders, entrepreneurs, CEOs, and really some of the most interesting people of our time. Can't wait to get started. Let's go. Let's go. Hi, everyone. It's Kara Golden from The Kara Golden Show, and I'm here with my next guest, Julia Borston, who is an incredible, incredible figure at CNBC. She is a senior media and tech correspondent, so you may know her name, but she also wrote a great book called When Women Lead. So many entrepreneurs covered in this book, all women, and people who have really busted through and and done a lot of incredible, incredible things and 
Julia has also done incredible, incredible things. So I'm so proud of her. You may know her for CNBC's Disruptor 50, which uh, she has run since 2013. She created it. Incredible. Highlighting private companies transforming the economy and challenging companies in established industries. And like I said, she's now the author, and we're going to get going and talk to her a bit about all of these various stories and lessons learned in her book. So I can't wait to get started and hear a little bit more. So welcome, Julia. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm such a big fan. Well, thank you for coming on. So first of all, I just want to start by hearing a little bit more about you and you as a kid. And your journey has just been incredible. You've been a journalist. You are now an author. You are just breaking boundaries right and left. So I want to hear a little bit more about what you thought you'd be doing. Who were you as a kid? Were you constantly journaling and writing? Were you, did you have dreams of becoming an entrepreneur? Who was Julia? Well, I would say I was always writing. I I found some old journals. They're pretty boring, but I did write in them a lot. But I always um, was on the newspaper. You know, my my parents were writers. My grandfather was a historian. I sort of grew up in, in a in a family where there were books on the shelves that a lot of different people in my family had written, whether it was aunts and uncles or, or my parents or grandfather. And so I sort of had writing in my blood, and but also writing in the air. And my parents always told me, you know, you could do anything when you grow up. My mom always reassured me, you know, things aren't equal for women now, but by the time you grow up, things will be different. You'll have all the opportunities in the world. You will be able to do anything. And Um, And I believed her. Uh, It wasn't until I got into the workforce that I realized things were not exactly equal. But interesting on the point of entrepreneurship is that, you know, I grew up in Los Angeles. We knew a lot of people who worked in the entertainment industry. I knew a lot of people who were doctors and lawyers and professionals, but not in in the entrepreneurship world. And so I didn't know any entrepreneurs and there wasn't this culture of talking about and celebrating entrepreneurship the way there is now. And now in retrospect, I'm really annoyed. I think I would have loved to be entrepreneurial, but it wasn't something that felt like was on the table. And I also felt like as a woman, the idea of doing something in the STEM fields wasn't really on the table. All my girlfriends and I were really into writing and um, and more of the arts. And I just didn't think about, you know, I was I did great in math. I was great in math class, but no one said, hey, why don't you pursue computer science? It just wasn't something that anyone ever suggested to me. And so I wish I had just known more about it. And so now I'm so impressed by all these amazing women, particularly those in the tech space. And I really wanted to get some of their stories out there to let people know, especially women, that there's so many opportunities and nothing should be off the table. And there are just so many role models, especially those that we don't know about or talk about. One of the things I know many of these entrepreneurs that you highlighted in the book, but over the years, I've been struck by entrepreneurs, both women as well as men. And, you know, they didn't start off becoming an entrepreneur. I mean, they were they were doing other careers and then they had an idea and they were curious about something and they jumped in and just tried. And they, to some extent, probably feared that it wouldn't work out, but they thought, what the heck, I'm going to just go ahead and try. What was your 
first job right after college. So one reason I'm so impressed by entrepreneurs is because I'm so risk averse myself. I've actually only had two jobs. I spent six years at Fortune Magazine. And during the time, um, I was also contributing to CNN and CNN CNN Headline News. And now I've been at CNBC for over 16 years. And it's kind of crazy to have been in two companies for so long. I don't think I know anyone else who's had so few jobs in such a long period of time. But um, I think part of that is because I just got really lucky. I graduated college in 2000. I actually got my job at Fortune Magazine a couple months before I graduated, right before the stock market started its plummet in 2000. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. So I was the last person hired at Fortune Magazine before the stock market did that crash. And so I just had a really amazing opportunity at Fortune. I actually took that job at Fortune um, because it was the best option of all the jobs I had applied to, but I had no experience with business. I had never taken an econ class, and I was worried that business news gonna, was going to be a little boring because I was interested in the arts and in politics, and I wanted to work at a Time magazine or an Entertainment Weekly. But those options I had there were more like fact-checking or writing captions. At Fortune, I just had a real reporting opportunity. So I said, okay, I'll take that chance. And they took a chance on me. And Fortune's theory at the time was you can't teach a business person how to write. It's much easier to teach a journalist about business. So I think one reason I've had so few jobs is because I've been really lucky in what those jobs are. And I've been able to be entrepreneurial within each of those roles. Definitely. One of the things that struck me in watching you over the years is that you have such a curiosity uh, when you are engaging with interviewing not only CEOs and founders, but I would consider major disruptors in the industry. Um, you're primarily covering tech, but you're doing a lot more than, than that. And you also created this Disruptor 50 program that doesn't profile uh, public companies like a lot of the companies that you're covering, but private companies. And what was it that made you so kind of curious about the private companies? And I mean, to me, actually taking an idea to a network and saying, here's this, here's what I want to go and focus on. I mean, that is a, an entrepreneur. That's a d disruptor. It's exactly the same skills. So I think you have it probably in your future somewhere in there, Julia. <laughs> well, well, we'll see. But but I do think that, you know, being a journalist, you know, part of what I do is react to the breaking news of the day. But part of it is trying to come up with new ideas. Let's figure out a new way to tell stories about the metaverse. Or there's this new technology. Let me do a story that explains what NFTs are and what their opportunities are. So there's a lot of coming up with little ideas and presenting them and pitching them. But, you know, I was I was really interested in all these new businesses. You know, I wanted to cover media because media was undergoing this transformation with Netflix and with YouTube. And I was reporting on Facebook before Facebook was a big public company. You know, my brother was still in college when Facebook launched and he was telling me about, it. I said, this thing could be huge. It could be crazy. I want to report on this. 
And there just wasn't much of a structure to tell these stories about startups on CNBC at the time, because CNBC's interest is really focusing on investors and big public companies. But I thought, hey, what if there's a way for us to put these companies on the radar of our viewers? I want to learn about these companies. So much of it was selfish that I was excited about the startups and the crazy innovations they were coming up with. So I said, let's create a structure. You know, I reported on Facebook's IPO and I said, hey, this was a huge IPO. Let's get these companies on the map before they go public. So I selfishly was excited to learn about these tech-driven companies across all sorts of different sectors and thought this would be a great way to highlight the 50 fastest growing ones. And as a result, I got to interview fantastic CEOs and learn about all these amazing tech-driven disruptions and that have changed everything, you know, everything about the way we live from Airbnb to companies like SpaceX um, to companies like Uber. So it's really given me a great window into to in innovation, disruption, and then also um, and these tech trends that have defined our future. It's so, so interesting. So let's get to your book. It's so well done. Um, I'm Thank surprised you. that this is your first book because you're such a great writer and obviously so curious and you dig into kind of the questions that I would want to uh, know about clearly. So how did you decide to write When Women Lead and, and why women? So I, it actually comes back to the Disruptor 50. I was interviewing and meeting hundreds of amazing CEOs, and there are fewer women. You know, there's all this data about how women are not represented in the ranks of CEOs. I mean, right now, women are about 8% of all the CEOs of the Fortune 500. The numbers tend to be even smaller in the startup space. So I was interviewing CEOs, noticing that there weren't that many women, but I was really impressed by the women I was interviewing. They seemed to have a different approach to solving problems. They were thinking long-term as well as more immediately um, and a lot of them had less access to capital. So while I was interviewing those CEOs, I was also working on this other project called Closing the Gap um, for CNBC, where we look at the people and individuals that are closing gender and diversity gaps. And I was coming across all of this data about how little access to capital female founders have. Female founders get 3% or less of all venture capital dollars. 3% or less, and I say or less because it's been about 3% every year for the past decade. Last year in 2021, it was 2% of all venture capital dollars. The numbers are crazy. I mean, the numbers are so crazy. I've had copy editors ask me if they are typos. They are not typos. They are nuts. So I was looking at those numbers, I was meeting these amazing women, and I thought, gosh, of course these women are amazing. They have defied the odds. They are by definition exceptional. And if they've been able to defy the odds, I want to learn from them. And I also really want to understand how they did it. So I thought, okay, this is a perfect book for me to write because it taps into my interest in innovation and disruptive leadership and also my interest in gender equity and what it's going to take for us to get there. So um, so I wanted to, to, to tell the stories of these amazing women because I think a lot of them are surprising and really inspiring. At least they have been to me but also to dig into the data behind it. Why have these women been able to lead in such successful ways? And what can we learn from them, both for our own personal development, but also to change the way we think about business and leadership in general? You know, it's interesting as you're talking about that, I feel like there are a number of groups that are funding early stage women. Um, but, it, it, but in order to scale, 
a company, you often need to get to venture. Not always. And there's more and more people who are investing in early stage that are getting a little bit later stage. You know, for those listening that are not really familiar with, you know, the financing stages and sort of where you go, depending on the size of your company, um, there's angel, there's venture, there's private equity, there's so many different options. But a lot of what Julia is talking about, um, you know, really allows women to be able to scale a company. Yeah. And, and that is 100% blocked by access to capital along the way. But what do you think is stopping women besides the capital? Well, I think what's really interesting is I think there is, um, you know, people are like, who's to blame? Who's to blame? Who are you going to point fingers at? Whose fault is this gender equity gap? And I think that I don't, think pointing fingers helps anybody. It's not effective. I think understanding the problem is valuable because then we could all better navigate it and even identify our own opportunity to like reject stereotypes. I think a lot of it is not malicious, but it comes down to pattern matching. And the fact that human instinct is to go with the pattern of something you know has worked in the past. The thing about venture capital investing is that a lot of bets are made before companies have a huge track record. You know, a lot of investments, millions and millions of dollars are invested in companies when they're an idea and a team or when they're a prototype, you know, or or a website that doesn't have revenue, let alone profits. But when investors are making those decisions long before there's a track record for a company, they're more likely to say, does this person match the pattern of someone I've invested in before and had that success? And I think that the power of pattern matching was just so dramatic that we can't underestimate it. And it's a version of unconscious bias, and we all do it ourselves. I mean, so I think one thing that's interesting is that there's a lot of data showing that women raise less money than men at the early stages of the companies when um, investors are naturally looking for entrepreneurs who fit a type, such as someone who has had a successful company before. That's a great type of entrepreneur to invest in, right? It seems safer. Someone who has an engineering background, um, you know, someone who has a, you know, worked in a senior role at a tech company. But what's interesting is once you get to the C stage of fundraising, so that's pretty far along, you know, the company is pretty far along. Once companies have a proven track record, women and men raise at the same level. Hmm. So at the C stage, the, the bias is stripped out because the numbers are there in the you know finances of a company. So that shows you that once women get to that level, they're not going to be judged with bias because the numbers speak to them for themselves. So I think it's really interesting to like think about ways to strip out bias. And there's some amazing tools now for hiring because the resume um, has been criticized as being not a good way to measure people's potential. And increasingly, companies are saying, okay, how do we hire in a way that's really going to not just find out what experiences someone had, what experience someone might have been privileged enough to have, but how we can how can we hire in a way that really measures whether they will be good at this job or whether they'll have the potential to grow into this job. And I think the more we can rely on data and the less on instinct, the more successful we'll all be. It's hard not to rely on instinct. That's what we're designed to do. Totally. But the data oftentimes will tell us that our instincts are actually wrong and not not going to help us for the long run. Can we talk about notifications for a second? Who actually leaves those sounds on anymore? Well, besides this one. That's another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. 
Whether your business is vintage teas or hint water, Shopify makes it possible for businesses to connect with their consumers. Shopify powers millions of businesses from first scale to full scale by helping them set up their online store in the vibe they want. You can sell products, gain new customers, and get the data you need to operate your business in a simple and fast way. And with Shopify, you can synchronize your online and in-person sales and view all your sales metrics in one place. You can reach your customers through tons of social media platforms as well, like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram through Shopify's growing suite of social media channels. Shopify has all the sales channels sorted so your business keeps growing from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform too. And if you're looking for a solution that has great customer service support, well, Shopify has that as well. Their team is always super helpful answering any questions that I've had in growing my business. Their team really makes you feel like they have your success in mind. Join me and millions of other businesses on Shopify today and take your business to the next level. Sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash Kara, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash Kara to start selling online today. That's shopify.com slash Kara. So I was fascinated when I was reading your book that Many of these women that you highlighted actually had startups prior, but those startups didn't go the way that they wanted them to go. Yet they were able to get back up and keep moving forward. Do you want to share any of those stories? Well, there's so many examples of how failure has enabled future success, or even, you know, people have been able to pivot into entirely new categories of things they didn't know anything about. I mean, it, it's interesting because I think about Gail Becker. She created Cauliflower, which is a cauliflower pizza crust company. And she did that when she was in her 50s. She had not been an entrepreneur, but she had had a lot of success in a corporate PR role. And she had been a successful executive for her whole life. And she said, this isn't what I want anymore. I'm going to do something totally different. Um, and that wasn't learning from failure. That was just taking her outsider perspective and her experience and saying, I can apply this to something totally new. Or I think about Karen Seidman Becker, who created this um, company called Clear Biometrics Company. You're probably familiar with them. If you go through the airport, they can help you go through security faster. They also now have health tech capabilities. So if you're going to a conference, you're going to a big office building, you can link your vaccination status, et cetera. But what's so amazing about her is that she had gone through all these prior crises. And um, this is a company that really pivoted well during the pandemic. They could have gone out of business. You know, if any business was going to go out of business, it would have been one that was really reliant on airline travel. So I interviewed her and I said, how did you figure out how to pivot and how to stay alive as a company during this crazy time when everything was under siege. And she said, I have been through so many crises. She had been through um, nine, her office was in you know lower Manhattan during 9-11. She'd been through that. She had seen how that, that part of Manhattan had rebuilt. And this idea of taking a crisis as an opportunity to rebuild, um, which by the way, that crisis also inspired her to try to think about things that would make airplane travel safer. She had been through the, the dot-com crash of 2000. And one thing she learned there is even though her firm had lost a lot of money in their investments, they watched how Apple continued to invest in technology and new products 
um, after that dot-com bust. And she thought, you have to keep investing in a downturn. That is the only way you can succeed for the long run. So every crisis she learned from, and one crisis she she had made some major mistakes in, the 2008 uh, financial crisis, she liquidated her assets. She was running a financial management term at, at firm at the time, and she panicked. She said, this is a disaster. I got to get out of the market. She liquidated the assets, returned them to her investors, but it was a disaster. And what she learned from that is that was a mistake. Sometimes you need to figure out how to think for the long term and not just panic in the moment. And so that all of those different crises, some she had succeeded in the moment, some she had failed in the moment, all of those crises were learning um, opportunities for her that she could bring into clear and make it the success it is today. You talk about the importance of women coming together to help each other. And Was there any consistent thread amongst these entrepreneurs that you heard? All of these entrepreneurs um, had faced challenges, but they also had amazing networks of women and men that had helped them along the way. Um, I one of my my takeaways from the book is that you know it takes a it takes a village, and everyone's village is going to look different. But but build your village, and um, there's such amazing data about the power of female networks to help each other, not just like get some advice. It's not about like getting together with a group of women and having them give you advice on a specific problem, but building a network that you can meet with regularly can actually have meaningful impact on your business outcomes. There's data showing that women that have a tight-knit group of diverse women with diverse perspectives is important because you don't want to just be friends with the three people who work down the hall from you at your company. It's better to have diverse perspectives. But also, I love the data about how being together with a group of women can help eliminate the negative impact of stereotypes. And if women are just solo doing their thing, reminded of a stereotype, they're going to do worse on a math test if they're told the stereotype is that women are bad at math. But if they're put in a group of small women, and then they're told, hey, women are bad at math, and then they're given a math test, they'll do great. Because being together with a group of women can help just eliminate that negative impact. And so the fact that, I mean, I know that hanging out with my girlfriends when I'm feeling down or I'm anxious about a work thing is going to help me out. That was just my sort of my gut instinct about why I want to see my friends when I'm having a hard time at work. The fact that there's science behind that is something that we all need to remember and tap into. And there are amazing organizations and companies that are designed to help women ask each other for professional help. Women are not accustomed. We're not socialized to be like, hey, I really need a a favor with my work. But men do it. And a lot of these organizations like Chief or The Crew or nonprofits like All Raise, they're trying to destigmatize that so we can all tap into each other's power. Absolutely. And coming up with ideas, too, that are new, right? That are new categories. No one else is doing it. So it's... uh, I don't know, maybe this is a little bit of a stereotype, but I don't feel like women go and create companies that are already in existence, right? They don't go and knock off, you know, a company um, because maybe they think they can do it slightly better. Uh, Instead, I feel like a lot of the women that I know that are creating companies or trying to create companies and trying to get them funded are doing something totally unique and different. And they're visionary entrepreneurs. And that's hard. 
really it's hard. hard. It's hard, but also there's so much opportunity. I mean, we've seen so many women succeed in creating products for women. There's this white space. I mean, look in the health tech space. There's this new category of femtech, which is like health tech companies designed to help women. A lot of them around fertility um, or menopause or problems and, and, and life phases that only impact women. And these are areas that just have been underinvested in forever, forever. And now we're starting to see more and more companies pop up around areas like maternal health. And there's white space there because women didn't have the opportunity to create those companies. And now they're saying, I understand this problem. This is something that I can help with and bringing that that unique perspective um, to a huge financial opportunity. That's what I think is so exciting. Like the fact that no one's built these companies, that's a, that's a whiff, that's a miss. It's a huge um, market. You know, women are 50% of the market. People should be creating more companies for them and not just in the retail space, in every space. Absolutely. I think one of the things that I think about, you know, where I've seen women excel is over the last couple of years during the pandemic. And I've seen some of the data around that. And I know you've covered a lot of that as well. But, you know, how have women stacked up in terms of leading during the pandemic companies versus men? Well, one thing that I have to say before we get into the leadership is that women have been hit harder during the pandemic. More women lost their jobs. Women suffered more setbacks. More women had to quit their jobs to, to deal with childcare. So there's been a she session is what they're calling it in terms of the negative impact of women on the pandemic. And now with inflation and all these recessionary pressures, there are a lot of concerns that women workers are going to be hit harder. But when it comes to leadership, there's a lot of data showing that women do better in times of crisis and women did better during the pandemic. I mean, the, the numbers, the statistics out about female leaders of countries during the pandemic and how they fared in terms of preserving life, that data was overwhelming. There was this question of, you know, are women doing better as leaders of countries like countries like New Zealand or Germany with Angela Merkel in that first year of the pandemic? Did they do better at preserving life and minimizing deaths? You know, why was that? And there were two two theories. One was, was it the woman who's just leading in a different way? Or is it that countries that elect women are more likely to have policies in place that prioritize healthcare and long-term long-term benefits? But there was no doubt that that the decisiveness of women, the willingness to rely on data over ego was incredibly valuable um, in health outcomes during the pandemic. And then in terms of leadership of companies, There are a lot of studies showing that women are often put into positions of power um, in what's called a glass cliff. When it looks like a company is failing, the board will put in a female CEO. There are many reasons that could be. One is who knows what will happen, but we're already in a bad situation. What's the worst that could happen if we put in this woman? So they're often put into these glass, glass cliff situations where things are looking bad. But when women are put into these tough situations, whether it's running a company um, or being, you know, they're already running a company or they're put in to run a startup, the data shows that they actually perform better than men do in those crisis situations. One thing they also do better at is leading with empathy, which increasingly employees really, really need. That's incredible. One of the stories that you and I were talking about earlier around mission-based companies, I found really, really fascinating that, you know, oftentimes, I mean, you You can share a little bit more about this, but the women versus men are uh, definitely getting the early stage capital. um, But why don't you 
share a little bit so, more about that? So it's really interesting. So statistically, women are more likely to found companies with an additional purpose. So yes, it's a company they want to make money, but it also has some environmental or social benefit. Maybe it's a health tech company. Maybe it's going to help the environment. But one thing that's really interesting when it comes to fundraising is that um, there's this great study out of Harvard Business School of how students reacted to different pitches. These are business school students evaluating different pitches. And the male and female students listened to pitches from a man and a woman. They listened to the same pitch. They rated the male CEO making this pitch higher. They said this business seems better if it was coming from a male CEO. Then the um, professors who were doing this experiment changed one thing in the pitch. They told the student, they had the, the actors who were delivering the pitch say that the company also had a social benefit. It was going to help the environment or it was going to help society. And they had these actors go out and deliver the pitch again. Once the companies had a social benefit, the students ranked the female CEO as high as the male CEO. Women are expected to be empathetic. Women are expected to be helping the world. And somehow having a social focus eliminated the bias and the, the, the stereotypes that women shouldn't be leaders. Um, so it, it indicates that women will have a better chance of raising money if they have some social or an environmental purpose associated with their company. But it's just, to me, the mere fact that there is such clear data showing that kind of bias against female CEOs, but also in favor of female leaders to display these characteristics of empathy and, and caring. It just shows you that there's so much buried in our in our society about, about expectations and pattern matching, back to the pattern matching. Yeah, the pattern matching concept is so, so interesting for sure. And I, I absolutely agree. So what are some of the key takeaways? I bet this book was a lot of fun to write and do the research and do these interviews because it's you probably saw a consistent thread, but you also saw some differences amongst uh, some of the entrepreneurs. Was there any key takeaways? Yeah, I mean, I thought I would um, I thought I would discover that all these women had come out with their own superpower. They were sort of came straight out of the gate, graduated from college, ready to lead with one of these traits or another. One was, you know, best at going to be best at, um, you know, drawing out the best of teams. Another might be super empathetic leader. I just thought that people were born leaders. And the one thing I found across all these different characteristics, dozens and dozens and dozens of CEOs, is that everyone had to develop their strengths. No one came out of the gate like Athena from the head of Zeus, ready to to fight in that in the business battle, everyone had to figure out what they were good at and get better at it. Um, there's some amazing data about how female athletes are more likely to be CEOs. And what I liked about that is the real takeaway there is the reason athletes are good leaders is because they're good at measuring their progress, setting benchmarks, figuring out where they are and where they want to get to and pushing themselves to succeed. And I, I was reassured and inspired by the fact that everyone had to to push themselves, really develop their leadership strengths, and therefore all of us can develop our strengths. Whether it's as an you know an employee or a, an entrepreneur, there's just so much room for all of us to improve because all of these women have come so so far in their own strength. And then another key takeaway I found is that you know I used to go by the Serenity Prayer, you know, don't don't bother wasting energy on things you can't control. But in fact, I found that actually understanding what the obstacles are doesn't just need to get you down. It can be a really useful and empowering tool because you're like, okay, this is the bias I'm going to face. 
this is the fact, you know, there are these facts about how my company, you know, may do X, Y, and Z. I just think it's really useful to know the obstacles and then you could better navigate them and also not let stereotype or bias get you down. Because once you understand that there's stereotype or bias out there, or here are the historical or structural things that you're going to be up against, then you could say, okay, that's not about me. I'm not going to let that bother me and hurt my feelings. It has nothing to do with me. So let me just use that data and all that information about double standards or whatever it may be to find a way, a path around it. And once you stop taking it personally, it's a lot easier to navigate around. I felt like even if you're an entrepreneur or or not an entrepreneur, I should say, or not in business, there are so many tidbits in this book and lessons, and it's just very motivating, very, very inspiring. So very nice job. And everybody should get a copy of When Women Lead. Julia, where's the best place to find it? We're in uh, pre-sale right now. Uh, so it's launching on October 11th, but uh, can you share a little bit more about where's the best place? Yes. When Women Lead, um, you can find it at any bookseller. You can find it on Amazon or your local bookstore. And you can also find more information and all the links on my website, which is juliaborston.com. And if you search When Women Lead or my name, hopefully that will all come up. And I also have some more resources and fun tests and things on the website uh, to test your own empathy and the like, stuff like that. That's really fun. So, so check it out. And I appreciate everyone checking out the book. Thank you so much, Julia. Thank you, Kara. Thanks all for listening to this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. And I want to thank all of our guests and our sponsors. And finally, our listeners, keep the great comments coming in. And one final plug, if you have not read or listened to my book, Undaunted, please do so. You will hear all about my journey, including founding, scaling, and building the company that I founded, Hint. We are here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and goodbye for now. Before we sign off, I want to talk to you about fear. People like to talk about fearless leaders, but achieving big goals isn't about fearlessness. Successful leaders recognize their fears and decide to deal with them head on in order to move forward. This is where my new book, Undaunted, comes in. This book is designed for anyone who wants to succeed in the face of fear, overcome doubts, and live a little undaunted. Order your copy today at undauntedthebook.com and learn how to look your doubts and doubters in the eye and achieve your dreams. For a limited time, you'll also receive a free case of Hint Water. Do you have a question for me or want to nominate an innovator to Spotlight? Send me a tweet at Kara Golden and let me know. And if you like what you heard, please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow along with me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Kara Golden. Golden. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.